Alrighty, so today's Bible reading comes from Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 to 24. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there were no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I... This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As the shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a, I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land." There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture of the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock, flock feed on what you have trampled and drink with what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away, I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. 
I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Well, thank you, Josh. And uh, let's pray. Our Father, it's good to gather together as your people and to come as your sheep and listen to your voice. And we ask, Lord, that you'd speak to our lives about truths that we need. Feed us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to begin with one question. It's a Bible quiz. You ready? So Bible's closed. Can anyone tell me here the third commandment? The third. All right, now just to raise the stakes, the person who gets it right gets this little book, little black book on science and God. There you are. So anyway, the third commandment. Anyone like to have a guess? Sorry? Let's, okay, we, we, none of us know it. Let's guess. All right, would anyone like to guess? Remember the Sabbath, that's number four. Good guess, though. Excellent guess. Oh, that's, that is a gr- that's the summing up commandment, but actually not in the ten, but very good because you understood the sum. Well done. Don't murder. Don't murder. I think that's number six. Down the back. Well done, well done. Could someone, okay, um, Abby, could you please run this down to Leah? Thank you so much. Well done. Give her a round of applause. <laughs> Well done, Leah. All right. Okay. <laughs> now, isn't, isn't that interesting? It's number three. That means it rates higher than do not murder, don't, uh, you know, keep the Sabbath, um, don't covet, don't steal, honour your parents. It rates higher than that. It's just under worship the Lord your God and serve him only and don't bow down to an idol. It's the, it's the next one, but we just... Didn't really know it. And it it is, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. What does it mean? Does it simply mean when you stub your toe, you don't say, oh God? Or is it more than that? Let's think more expansively for a moment. Think about God's name. Think about the big deal it was for him to reveal his name to Moses. Think about how God made a name for himself among the nations when he redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt and made the nations fear him and honour his name. Think of God's people, the Israelites. They were bearers of his name among the nations. Think of how they were to bring honour to God by the way they conducted themselves. Think of your family name. Think of how your name could be sullied. What would cause it to be dragged through the mud? Think of how Jesus tells us to begin praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, first request, hallowed be your name. That is a desire which is dear to the heart of every person Uh, who knows the riches of Christ's grace. We want his fame, his honour, his reputation to be spread, don't we? 
Given all that, can you see that the third commandment is much more than telling us not to use God's name as a swear word? If we call ourselves Christians, not assuming that of everyone here, but uh, you are Christ's ones, that's what it means, then that means you bear his name. Think of how Jesus' name gets dragged through the mud when we, if we're known as Christians, if we sin grievously. Think of the damage done to God's reputation when, say for example, a public Christian, like a church pastor, or a Christian politician sins grievously and the impact that that has and how we who also bear his name, how that makes us shrink and recoil with grief and shame because God's name has been sullied through the actions of someone else. Now listen to Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 17. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and actions. And so I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and actions. And yet whenever, wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave the land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel had profaned among the nations where they'd gone, and therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to restore you. No, for the, I'm doing it for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. Okay, most of us know that if we are known to be a Christian at school or at uni or at work or in our street, in our wider family, we'll know that we carry God's name and we'll know that people watch us and they'll judge God by how we behave, right? And even if people are on side and sympathetic, though they're not a Christian, they'll still look at us and they'll judge whether God is real by the impact of our beliefs on our lives. If we act in a way which is inconsistent to our beliefs, they'll think God isn't real, he can't be real, they don't believe it, right? You see how sin leads to dishonoring of God's name and God's reputation takes a hit. We bear his name. Israel bore his name, and they dishonored his name. And they showed that despite all that he had done for them, they were no different to the nations. In fact, they were worse. And so when God judged them and sent them into exile in the sight of the nations, God's name took a massive hit. God sends his prophet Ezekiel to speak to the exiles when they are in Babylon at rock bottom. Everything, all the blessing that they had from God has been stripped away and they know that they are suffering for their sin and they own it, they own it. 
And now when they are rock bottom, God says he is now going to restore the honor of his name. But to do that requires not just restoring his people in the sight of the nations, bringing them back, right, to, to Israel, but he has to do more than that because who's to say if he brought them back, the same situation wouldn't arise again? You know, they'd commit idolatry and they'd just go down the plug hole again. God needs to do something more than restore them. He needs to transform them, right? And he sets out his plan in these chapters. Now, if you were God, the task just to restore them would be big enough. You'd have to bring them safely across all that distance, out of captivity, and then into their ravaged land. And you'd have to establish new leadership for them. And you'd have to protect them from attack on the way and then when they get there from human attack and also from the attack of wild beasts, animals. And then you'd have to feed them because the land would be decimated by warfare and have a food problem. And you'd have to heal the land as well. And then you'd have to establish them once again, establish their cities, their houses, and in the process of that, restore their dignity because that's at rock bottom. And then, if they were to be your people, of course, you'd have to establish new terms for relationship, wouldn't you? How are you going to work out this relationship? And then on top of that restoration process, of course, then he has to transform them from within and deal with the sin problem. Now, how? How does that happen? Well, if you've been a Christian for any length of time and have struggled with the reality of ongoing sin, then you know, this is your issue too. How does God transform us? Uh, aren't you someone who longs for deep, sustained transformation which issues forth in holiness of life? Where you do not dishonor God's name, where you don't even feel like you're on the edge of perhaps dishonoring God's name, where you don't even feel the pull to do it. Wouldn't that be lovely? And even if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, have you ever wondered how do you produce deep and lasting change from within? God, how will you transform us? Well, in Ezekiel chapters 34 to 36, God takes us through four key steps. The fifth is the climax. That's next week, chapter 37. That's the climax. But four key steps, steps to restoration and transformation. Okay, the first step is new leadership. God tells Ezekiel to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Shepherding is, is, is that metaphor for um, you know, leading of people. In the ancient world, it was, it was understood that the kings were the shepherds. Usually, when we hear that shepherds, we think, oh, that's the priests, right? And it was in New Testament times, but shepherds primarily refers to Israel's kings. Why do I say that? Because they were the ones who were tasked by God with leading his people. And they were the ones primarily responsible for leading God's people away from God in the worship of foreign gods and with all the immorality that went with it. There were a few standout exceptions in Israel's history, Josiah, Hezekiah, etc. Um, but the priests and the people followed the leadership of the king. It was the kings of Israel and Judah who led, uh, led the nation and led them astray. 
Their mindset was to use their power to take care only for themselves. Does that sound familiar? Of leaders? And not care for the flock. On this they were wholly negligent. God says, you eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool. Okay, that's fair enough for a shepherd. You, but you, you slaughter the choice animals and you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays. You have not searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. And so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched for them or looked for them. This was a failure of leadership of Israel's king. So God says, I am against the shepherds. I will hold them accountable and I will remove them. And that is exactly what God did. At the time of Ezekiel, uh, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, was already in Babylon. He had been exiled in the first wave. He was in exile already. Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's uncle, was appointed in Jerusalem as a replacement king. He was the king during Jerusalem's siege. But by this time, he has had his eyes plucked out. And the last thing he saw before his eyes were plucked out was his own sons, the prince of Israel, being killed before his eyes. That was the last visible memory he had. In other words, the monarchy was at an end. There were no more kings. No more kings of Israel. When the exiles came back, Nehemiah was the governor, but he was no king. There were no kings after this. God removed the false shepherds massively. And then God spoke of new leadership. I myself will search for the, my, my sheep and look after them. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered. This is no um, delegated authority. God himself would do it. I will bring them out from the nations. I will gather them from the countries. I will bring them back to their own land. I will pasture them. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down. I will search for the lost. I will bring back the strays. I will do what Israel's kings should have done but I myself will do it. I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong, that is the false shepherds, and the, indeed some of the sheep who were guilty of the same, I will destroy, I will shepherd the flock with justice. Now how's he gonna do it? Verse 23 of Ezekiel 34, God tells us, he says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them he will tend them and be their shepherd. My servant David is a reference, of course, um, to Israel's second king, the, the, the king after God's own heart, David. The king whom God made a promise in David's lifetime 500 years before that one day a king would come from his family who would rule over God's people eternally, uh, the son of David, all right? Now David, of course, by the, this time, had been dead for 500 years. Okay, for 500 years, the promise of this wonderful son of David had remained unfulfilled. And guess what? Now it would for another 500 years because the monarchy was ended, right? But the Jewish people, of course, after Ezekiel, they still hung on to this promise because the promise still stood. They didn't have a monarchy, but they still knew that God had promised that a son of David would come 
And Ezekiel referred to that promise. Well, God promised it again in Ezekiel. And then one day, of course, the waiting was over because there was news. Finally, finally, there was news from heaven. An angel, God, God had sent his angel Gabriel to a young woman in the north of Galilee, in the hill country. And that angel told her that she would have a son who would sit on the throne of David and that he would be the son of the Most High. Jesus, the son of David. He, he's the one God was speaking of here. Jesus, the good shepherd, the good shepherd, who came to shepherd God's people, who came not to ravage the flock, not to tear them apart, not to grow fat on them, but to seek and to save the lost. He's the one who would go out. He would gather people for God. He came not to exploit, though he had the power of the king of kings. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. And he came as the good shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep. What a difference to the false shepherds of Israel. He's the new leader of God's people. You see, he is the king, <laughs> the king of kings, really, the son of David, Christ the Savior. The fact that his coming was hundreds of years after God spoke uh, through his prophet Ezekiel um, shows that God's message to the exiles wasn't just about them. It was a plan that involved us too. This message of God to the exiles in Ezekiel is a message for us as well. Now, because Jesus is the fulfillment, this is why pastors today can never be said to be the true leaders of God's people. Because the true leader of God's people is only ever Jesus Christ. He is the chief shepherd and the overseer of our souls. He remains this. And if pastors have any delegated authority of any sort to lead, it is only ever under him. It is only ever as under shepherds. It is only ever to follow in his steps. And it is only ever to point people to him. That is all the power we have to lead. It is only ever pointing people to Jesus. Because he is the king. He is the true leader of God's people. So, new leadership. The second step of God's plan, don't worry about the outline, we'll, we'll speed up. The second step of God's plan uh, to restore his people was a new relationship, right? Verse 25 of 34. I will make a covenant of peace with them. So they had trashed the previous covenant, they'd broken it, but here is a signal that God will make a new covenant. Now, for the exiles, tangibly, this meant something physical. Um, you go on in that passage and it says, when, when they would return, God would rid the land of wild animals so that when they arrived and they had to sleep out in the open because the buildings were destroyed, the wild animals wouldn't rip them apart at night. Excellent. Okay. Um, and also when they arrived, they would need food because, and, and God said the trees will be fruitful and the ground will produce lots of crops. That is, he is a shepherd who is providing for his people. He really would be their true shepherd who would lead his flock to lie down in green pasture. But this promise of a new covenant, of course, speaks of more than just safety and food. It refers to a new basis of relationship, a new covenant arrangement, different 
to the old covenant relationship which he had established uh, through Moses at Mount Sinai. This was a new relationship based um, upon what would happen through the Good Shepherd. It was referred to by him explicitly on the night before Jesus died. He referred to a sign which was in one way prophetic of what would happen in a few hours' time when he got crucified. He met with his disciples and he raised a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. So a new relationship which is forged on the basis of the cross and of Jesus shedding his blood for us, a new covenant of peace would be established. Thirdly, um, God's plan to transform his people would involve a new home. For the exiles, it would be marked by safety and if you can imagine the difference that having a home makes to someone who has been homeless and um, you know, the dignity that that gives to them or, or a new citizenship, a new physical house in a new country for someone who's been a refugee. Uh, it restores their dignity. The main local threat uh, for the exiles was from the Edomites to the southeast. Now, those of you who are old enough to remem remember that Boney M classic, By the Rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Um, the, verse, the, the verse in Psalm 137, which was where that comes from, which is not quoted in that song, is that referenced, referencing the Edomites. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. They stuck the knife in to Israel at that point. Now, in chapter 35, Ezekiel is told to prophesy to Mount Seir, which is, is in Edom, the Edomites. I am against you, and I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolate waste because you harbored this ancient hostility and delivered the Israelites to the sword at the time their calamity, their punishment reached a climax, because of that I will give you over to bloodshed. Since you didn't hate bloodshed, bloodshed will pursue you. And it happened, the Babylonians wiped them out too. Now whilst this just sounds like a, a repeat of chapters that have gone in Ezekiel, another prophecy against another nation, the impact for the exiles about to come back um, is that when they would go home, they would be safe. They would be safe to lie down. They would be safe to rebuild without fearing invasion or being ravaged or you know, foreign attack again. And with this promise of restoration of land and of security from those who mocked them comes a restoration of dignity. Chapter 36, verse six, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I speak in my jealous wrath because you've suffered the scorn of the nations. Verse 15, no longer will I make you hear the taunts of the nations, and no longer will you suffer the scorn of the people or cause your nation to fall, declares the Sovereign Lord. You won't be made fun of anymore. And of course, for the exiles that happened, in 538 BC, God brought the exiles back uh, Cyrus was now in charge. He was a Persian king. The Babylonians were no longer in charge. And Cyrus issued an imperial edict of return. And those who had been exiled could now return. And they came back and God reestablished them in their own land. And when they got there, yes, there was some opposition, but it was nothing like the scale of mockery that they endured when they were sent into exile when Jerusalem fell. So God promises an end to mockery. 
for his people. Except if you know a bit of history, you know that it's not the case that God's people were never mocked or scorned again by other nations. Um, the Holocaust, remember that? Second World War. Or in the intervening years between Ezekiel and Jesus, of course, uh, the Jewish people suffered, suffered terribly under the Greeks and then the Romans. So where does this promise to end the mockery go? Well, we remember how that when Jesus was born, um, this brought delight to an old man, Simeon the priest, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. It was like the whole nation needed consoling. And he held the Christ child in his arms and he was filled with joy because this was the key to the consolation of Israel. Now, how so? Well, we remember how Jesus himself kind of was like an exile, a refugee. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We, now, we know how he went to his own, but his own didn't receive him. We know how he endured taunts and mockery when he hung on the cross. But yet, of course, with that surprising twist, he was, he was raised from the dead, and you can't mock the one who has defeated death. <laughs> He's beyond mockery at that point. Um, and that's why even today, of course, Christians who are dispossessed our Afghani brothers or sisters, while they can find strength and dignity in knowing that Christ will bring them into a home much better than any physical land here. And we're going to hear about that in the weeks ahead in Ezekiel. But part and parcel with God's plan to transform us was to give this new home, safe from the taunts and attacks of other nations, and with that home to restore our dignity. And you only have to read Revelation 5, Revelation 7, uh, to understand this is what God's holding out for us too. People safe, gathered around the throne, um, in our home, in our home, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Safe, you see. This is part of God's plan for restoration. The fourth step in God's plan um, is to change them from within. And this is the plan to transform them. How is that going to happen? God prophesies in Ezekiel 36 that he will give new hearts and a new spirit. In verse 24, God says, when he takes them out from the nations and gathers them from the countries and brings them into their own land, then he will sprinkle clean water on them and they will be clean, right? He says, I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll, I'll take from you your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then you will live in this land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Now, where is this fulfilled? In the exiles, in Ezekiel's day, yes, they uh, did return. And when they returned, yes, they did struggle with covenant faithfulness. Just read Ezra or Nehemiah. But we have to say one thing had changed in them. For the large part, they didn't have any idols. Now, this was a huge change from what they were like before they went into exile. So, 
largely, not completely, but largely they had rid themselves of idols. But did they worship the Lord fully? Well, not as Ezekiel spoke of. So when did the fulfillment come? Ezekiel spoke of washing with water, of being cleansed. Ezekiel spoke of God putting a new spirit in them so that they would want to live for him. When does that happen? Well, guess what? That is the background context for Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter three, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you are born of water and of the spirit. Now, if you've read that passage before, you may have wondered, what does Jesus mean when he says born of water and of the spirit? Does this mean physical birth, you know, the waters of birth, and then the spirit, you have to be have a spiritual experience? Or does it mean that you've got to get baptized in water and then have a new second experience of the Spirit? Well, guess what? The passage which comments on that in the Bible is Ezekiel 36. This is the one place in the Bible where Spirit and water are mentioned together side by side. And what he's saying is, um, he's talking about having the grubby stain of our sins washed away so that we are clean before him and then of receiving God's spirit of being born again, born from above. How does this happen? In John chapter three, Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, it happens when you believe in God's son. For God so loved the world, he explained to Nicodemus, um, that those who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the world, I missed, it, missed that bit out, didn't he? He gave his only son, so that those who believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I know that many people here will be thinking, yeah, but I did that. I did that years ago. And guess what? I'm still frustrated because I struggle with the pull of sin. And I still feel like I'm just on the verge of perhaps dragging God's name through the mud because I slip up or I do something I shouldn't have done. And people will see it despite believing in Jesus, despite having the spirit, I still long for that complete transformation, right? Now for every believer, that's our experience. That deep whole of life transformation and it's a work in progress by the spirit throughout our lives. So what do we do is the question, okay. I wanna finish with this. What you do as a sheep who's being led by Jesus Christ, the shepherd, is you listen to the voice of the shepherd. What does your shepherd call you to do? Well, guess what? When he started preaching, he said, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's what you've got to do. You've got to repent, and you've got to believe the good news. And those are the two things that God's sheep need to keep doing, right? This is how God changes us from within through his Holy Spirit. You do two things. First of all, you repent. You say, I already did it. Well, whenever you're a, if you're a Christian, Jesus, belonging to Jesus, when you discover sin, you repent of it and you make it your daily habit. Now, I've found that it's helpful for me to, to carry around in my head the thought, I have already repented, therefore I'm not gonna walk in that. In other words, I'm not just still walking through muck. I, I'm, I've left that behind, I'm not gonna go there. But if you do, you repent. 
All right? So it's, you've got to change your life. Um, the New Testament talks about this all the time in the New Testament letters. It doesn't necessarily use that word, but it, you know, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Keep crucifying the sinful nature. This is the language of repentance, okay? Be who you've become to be, who you're called to be. Follow the shepherd. Get rid of sin, all right? Eradicate it. Repent. Turn to Christ. Now, if that was all that was said, then it would all be up to us, wouldn't it? And we'd be loaded with guilt. <laughs> and we'd be thinking, oh my goodness. But here's the other thing you've got to do. Believe the good news. Uh, you can't have one without the other. You've got to believe the good news. And the good news is not about you, it's all about him. The good shepherd who came to lay down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd who saw you like sheep without a shepherd and felt compassion for you. The good shepherd who leads you in a better way. The good shepherd who lifted that cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood which was given for you, poured out for you. The good shepherd who went to the cross and as the blood flowed and the life ebbed from his body, the wrath of God against you went away. And a covenant of peace was established between you and God which is based not on your obedience but on what he did. What a, what a great thing. You've got to repent that's what the shepherd's calling you to do. And you've got to believe the good news. We are sheep. He's our shepherd. That's his voice. His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. That's what you'll do. And as you do and cooperate with the Holy Spirit who is calling you to do this, he will change you from within and your life is transformed. And by God's grace, through his death, you are his people, the sheep of his pasture, and he will have you lie down. And God is your God. Wonderful. Father in heaven, we praise you for Jesus, our good shepherd. We praise you that he came to lead us and he calls us to change, but he also forges the way a new covenant, and we praise you that he laid down his life for us and that he felt compassion and that he did what Israel's shepherds, what her kings failed to do. He looked after and he seek, he's still seeking out strays and he's still binding up the brokenhearted and he's still bringing us back and we praise you for him. Amen. to just think about um, what that message means for us today. Discover sin, repent and turn away from it. Turn, from, turn to Christ. As Christian sinners, it's kind of easy to find that our own sin might be a bit less than everyone else's, less than what we see in others. But we know a prideful heart is a hard, stony heart. 
So perhaps reflect now on the ways and situations in which your heart needs renewing. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. <laughs> 